Hi, Damien Marcus from 100 Not Out here. MP. Yes, Damo. We all know the importance of having a diary, but who wants a boring old day planner? Not me. Enter the journey of me. Ta-da! The incredible eight-month wellness journal designed especially for wellness peeps like you. Yes, Damo, this beautiful eight-month wellness guide is filled with questions, planners, exercises, reflective notes, and more. Endorsed by the Up For A Chat girls and loved the world over, the journey of me is a must-have if you're ready to live your best life for life. To purchase your very own journey of me and receive a free set of inspirational postcards, simply enter the code COUCH at www.wellandnew.com. That's www.w-e-l-l-i-n-e-u-x.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Christoph, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damien Christoph. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is The Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness to our lives. And today, we have one of the up-and-coming hottest new podcasts on The Wellness Couch. Damien Christoph, would you like to introduce our famous guest? I will. Thank you, Lawrence. Hey, just in case you didn't realize, this is our second podcast altogether, and it could be like one of 10 for the whole year. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> we just spent a whole weekend together. Come on. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I actually had some people ask the other day, when are you boys going to do a podcast together again? Isn't it called The Wellness Guys? I've gone, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Pressure's on. Gotcha. <laughs> we I'll all make get together happen. at the summit, so we get to record one then. Well, yeah, it's at least one a year. Yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Fair crack of the whip. Boys, we are joined with, by esteemed colleagues today. We've got, um, we've got a chiropractic nutritionist uh, and another chiropractor who have both gone on to study uh, further um, and advance their knowledge in not only neuroplasticity but functional neurology, which is a unique field. And um, not, uh, not that it's specific to chiropractic, but a lot, uh, there's a number of chiropractors who are doing it. And it's so exciting. And I'm really excited today because not only are these guys in practice, in the trenches, doing amazing things, they're also uh, they've put together a podcast called Backchat, and Backchat is one of our fastest growing, up and coming uh, podcasts on the Wellness Couch. and And for those who haven't listened to Backchat, if you want to learn more about how you how you can do amazing things with your nervous system, you got to listen to these boys. By Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Cox, and chiropractors here in Melbourne, who are here to share with us amazing information about neuroplasticity and functional neurology. Welcome, boys. Hey, Damo, LT, Brett, how are you guys going? Hey, guys, great to be here. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Boys, the other day, actually a little while ago, time gets away from me, we interviewed a lady by the name of Barbara Arrow-Smith and we spoke about um, neuroplasticity and she set up schools to be able to teach people how to, how to learn and how to you know, get beyond difficulties and you know, different challenges, learning disabilities, all those sorts of things and that was called neuroplasticity and, uh, and I'd love to know and as will our listeners would love to know, what, what is neuroplasticity from, from your mouth, what, what, how would you describe it and then how do we engage in neuroplasticity from a chiropractic or functional neurology perspective? Well, Damo, look, it's, uh, it's an interesting term. It's certainly a, a bit of the buzzword of uh, this last decade. And, uh, I mean, if we break it down into its terms, neuro refers to the nervous system and plastic refers to being changeable. So, in other words, the nervous system and in particular the brain can change and create and bind new connections between nerve cells, especially in response to changing environments. So it's something which... You know, we often correlate it to being a positive thing with neuroplasticity. So when we've got um, perhaps patients who are injured, we say, with a stroke or, 
if we find in a functional situation where we have uh, windows into the nervous system that aren't working so well, we can provide positive changes to it. But, you know, what is often not talked about, Anthony, is, is sort of negative changes in neuroplasticity as well. It works both ways, doesn't it? And of course, the, the negative potentials of plasticity, a great example of that would be uh, stress. Now, there are certain parts of the brain, like the the midbrain and the um, uh, and limb, uh, mesolimbic system. I know they're big words, but basically these are the parts of the brain that respond to stress. Now, if we're under intense extreme stress, such as, uh, you know, an example, that might be a war environment or more of a chronic mild stress, such as, you know, you hate your job, um, what that happens is, from a neuroplastic term is that these nerve pathways become uh, more plastic, they fire more readily, so over time it only takes simple things for someone to get that stressed out experience. So it's yeah, both contexts, and, but, you know, we certainly know from a perspective of helping our patients, we can use methods and applications in neuroscience to really enhance uh, the central nervous system, the well-being of, of, of the patients we see every day. Man, guys, yeah, guys, these big words are actually stressing me out right now. So um, <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. For the general public um, who's listening to this yes. show, they're going to be wondering like, okay, that's great. Uh, it's, it's great to learn about that our brain can change and it can be plastic and we can learn from it. What are some of the things that, you know, how does this apply to me in a daily life? How do I, how does it apply for me as a parent to my kids? Or how does it apply for me um, in a job um, or even learning about health? What? How does health affect that? Well, here's one thing uh, – when we talk about before in terms of the brain loves novel experiences. Quite often we'll have period people saying, you know what, I, I my work I could do in my sleep. You know, I, mm. I, I, I know exactly where I'm driving. I know exactly what I mm. do. I've got it all down pat. And and some people might say that in terms of, a, you know, that that's a good thing that mm. they, they feel, mm. yeah, they feel mm. confident and competent. Mm. But actually that can be a negative thing because okay. what's happening is that you need new nerves pathways so that these nerves in the brain can make new connections and that needs to be happening all the time of course it happens in children because just about every experience is a new experience but we need to have new experiences in order to really have a healthy brain so it's novel activities guys it's doing things that are different you know i reckon i don't know what you guys think but you know as we get a bit older our fear tends to rise a little bit we tend to have a bit more fear avoidance behavior but whereas no 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 way bring it on outside these three uh, <laughs> a lot of the rest of the world tend to engage in things where they stop doing novel activities they take fear avoidance so they feel oh what are people going to think if i try and do something different if i get up get up on stage and publicly speak or you know, um, take on something different. People are going to laugh at me if I try and do something novel or different. But we know that as a practical example, to keep brains active, functioning really well, to reduce the risks of things like dementia when one's older, doing novel, different things, learning a language when you're older, um, taking up a new sport, which fires different pathways in the brain, are really simple, practical examples of positive neuroplasticity that we can do every day. So I saw a great example of this on the weekend. I had the absolute pleasure with my son on the weekend of teaching him how to ride his bike. Riding his a bike. Wheels. I saw that. And post. it was so cool. Like I, I just actually loved the process of going through it with him, of watching him, you know, struggle to do it, of facing his challenges, of, you know, having a bit of a sulk and telling me he's never going to be able to do it. And then, you know, and then breaking through that and being able to do it. And now it's like a couple of days later, he's like a champ at it. He just wants to ride around everywhere. So what is actually going on within his brain as that happens? And, and what are the benefits of that to his nervous system and his brain of learning that new experience? So, so one of the really important, and I know uh, we're not going to try and use too many big words here, but I'm going to just throw one 
big-ish word out there called the cerebellum. Now, the cerebellum is the cauliflower part of the brain that sits right at the bottom and the back uh, of the brain. And what its uh, main role is to understand where the body is in space. So when your uh, son, uh, Brett, is learning to uh, ride his bike, that area of the brain is being stimulated significantly. And from a chiropractic perspective, that's probably one of the main things that we uh, stimulate if we're working with the spine or doing any sort of, you know, sensory uh, therapy. Um, What is also really interesting about that part of the brain is that it's also very much involved in learning. So it fires from that cerebellum, from that area of the brain that recognizes movement and uh, recognizes where we are in space, that fires into our frontal lobes, which are all about thinking and cognition. So uh, not only is exercising you know, and learning to ride a bike great for the cerebellum, it's great for learning as well. Hey, can I jump in too? Also, Brett, you know, you talked about the emotions and how, you know, the connection there with your son, initially he's perhaps been a bit despondent and then your, you know, uh, paternal role supporting him through that and working through that. We know that, you know, the limbic part of the, the brain, which is sometimes considered the fifth lobe of the brain, is, is associated with emotions and connections. And, you know, we know that also holds for memory as well. So down the track when you guys are reminiscing about that weekend where you learned how to teach him how to, you know, ride his bike, uh, there are pathways there that we built in there that will still remain there. So it's not only the, the the activity, Anthony. It's also the you know the limbic, the emotional aspect too that that you've been actually stimulating your son with, which is you know we yeah absolutely. And and the conversations we have, I guess, which are around um, you know that things do take time and that you have to you know that it does take repetition and that you know it's not about whether you actually ride the bike or not. It's whether you keep trying or not. And if you keep trying, then you get you know it, it's I guess those sort of lessons that that he ingrains into his neurology as well in terms of how to learn stuff later on as well, I guess. Yeah, look, it's not conceptualizing these things obviously is, is great, but you learn by action and, uh, and repetition. And that's what builds these um, nerve fibers. We basically start from, from the moment we're born with you know, something like um, 100 billion nerve cells. And uh, these all have various connections and how those connections develop very much uh, depend on our environment. So, you know, you having this experience with your son and your son having this experience is just building a massive load of connections between those nerve cells and that can only be great for, for both of you. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I get the sense that it takes some time to build these nerve cells though and to build these bridges. Um, we we did ask this question um, in the previous um, podcast with Barbara, but I don't think it really got answered. Is there any kind of understanding of how long it actually takes to build these bridges and does it slow down as we get older? Well, that's a very good question. I can answer that in, a, in an opposite way because <laughs> what we do know that if we actually... <laughs> no, answer the question, Paul. <laughs> no, go for it, mate. Make a great politician, that's wouldn't right. I can tell you what I know. <laughs> totally. totally. What, what, what we do know is that when we denovate, when we injure a nerve we have what we consider 18 months to two years to recover from a nerve injury. And we talk about it in, in a severe type of nerve injury. So uh, we don't, we, 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 the research, the literature tells us that. We know that. In regards formulating nerve pathways, and these are track pathways, et cetera, I don't think we can actually, or I don't know, well, I, haven't, I haven't read the, yeah. what, what, you know, what the time zones are, but certainly as we age, neurodegeneration does occur, so certainly those pathways slow down. But, hey, you know, we've, I mean, you guys on your um, 100 Not Out, you've, you've interviewed some amazing people in their 90s. Oh, like Stephen Jepsen, like how good was he? Learned to juggle at 72. So you can do it, obviously. Yeah, it can yeah. be done, but, you know, it's coming back to your point, Anthony, you've got to actually do it 
and then activate fibers because the nerve cells need activation, they need fuel, they need oxygenation, and they need those three elements. And whether you're learning to walk at 18 months or whether you're learning to juggle when you're 90, things can be done. Yeah, it depends very much on the intensity of the stimulation. Um, like, you know, if you have a very intense experience, that's something that you're going to remember for a whole lot longer than something that was just, you know, a, a passing by experience and, and repetition. So, so if something's done with real intensity and, and uh, repetition, you will learn it faster um, and you'll hold those uh, memories quicker. Uh, that, you know, in, in, they talk about with um, uh, the 10,000 rule that, uh, you know, Roger Federer to, to develop the perfect backhand needed to hit that shot 10,000 times to be, to be so ingrained in his neurology that it no longer became a, a conscious thoughtful thing where I have to get my right foot across to there, my angle of my racket needs to be at this angle and I need to follow through and keep my head on the ball like that. It's just done automatically. So the 10,000 rule, maybe that applies for, for, for a lot of these things. Hey guys, we can never get through a podcast without Anthony talking about tennis. Always <laughs> angle tennis in every it's, time. It's my sport. It's so boring. It's so boring. <laughs> talk about cricket or something, would you? <laughs> that would be even more boring. So let's talk, let's talk about opposites. Uh, you, you met, Brett mentioned talking about the, his son riding a bike. And uh, there was a, um, a few months ago I saw this video where a guy actually um, took a bike and reversed it where yes. if you – turn left it actually goes right and you go right it turns left and so basically you have to learn how to ride that bike uh the opposite way which is basically unlearning all the things that he's learned since he was a kid and the process that he had to go through which really messed him up i don't know if you saw the video it was just fantastic to be able to see someone unlearning and relearning a new skill but then he actually did the flip after he relearned how to re you know on this opposite bike or whatever it was called he actually got on a real bike a normal bike and it took it was very difficult for him to ride the bike again. So how does that apply in terms of people who have maybe unconsciously um, learned something that is actually doesn't benefit them in, in some way and the difficulties someone has to go through to unlearn a bad behavior and to relearn something that's actually better for them? There's a test that we uh, often do as a part of our basic neurological workup and it's called a saccade anti-saccade test. And what we do is you have the person look at your nose and then you wiggle a finger and get them to look at the, the finger that is moving and then straight back to the nose. And that's called a saccade test. Uh, and then we get them to do the opposite of that, sort of a bit similar, I guess, to uh, riding the bike the opposite way, where they have to do an anti-saccade and look to the opposite uh, finger that's moving, which is generally a much more difficult task. And it's all about um, how the, the frontal lobes of the, uh, of the brain can control eye movement. Now, to do, to do an undo uh, neurological um, uh, task is no doubt about it. It's a, it's a difficult thing. And we get sort of used to rhythms and uh, repetition uh, that can be quite difficult to change. But the bottom line is exposure to this stuff is almost always good right across the board. Unless you're, tra you're training yourself to do something that's ultimately going to be bad for you, then any new experience is almost always a good experience. I, I think, Al, too, what, he, wasn't there examples where – uh, people were on stage and they had to go about one meter on the bike. Is that right? Is that the same video? Yeah, that's right. They had to do. Uh, uh, they had to ride a meter and they couldn't even get. Oh, it wasn't a meter. It was maybe like about probably you know five or ten meters, and uh, yeah. it was very difficult for them to even do that. Look, it's it's amazing, and it's um, you know it, 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 that demonstrates that with neuroplasticity, we have pathways that that are consolidate and are fired up. So if we perhaps took MRI pictures of neurological pathways would find that they'd be sort of fired up quite a bit as they're consistently being fired. And that's 
how the nervous system responds. It requires by activation and changes in the environment. Mm. It's if you change the environment, i.e., you know, we change everything from left to right, right to left. You know, the brain goes into scramble mode. It, it goes into a difficult scramble mode and has to then re rebuild and reconfigure different pathways, which, you know, in the old days of neuroscience, we thought that was never possible. We thought that, you know, basically the brain would not change and it would be stay fixed. So then if you had a serious lesion like a stroke, you'd be put into a, a nursing home, that'd be it. Yeah. Whereas we know yeah. we can change things. But it, as Anthony alluded to earlier, it, it needs continual uh, frequency of stimulation in order to um, rebuild New pathways. One thing further, Lawrence, on that question, that's uh, Professor Carrick, who developed the the, the functional neurology uh, program. Um, one of the uh, treatment modalities that he uses often is uh, mirror imaging. And say, for example, if someone has had a stroke and lost the proper use of their left arm, then what they would get the patients to do is uh, place their arms out on a table, put a mirror um, in front of the left damaged arm, so they can't actually see that arm but they can see the reflection of their right arm. So they'll get them to look at the mirror and move both hands. They'll see what looks like the left arm moving, even though it may not be, as a way of retraining the brain. So all these little interesting sort of backflip type um, mm. activities can be used in a therapeutic sense as well as a you know an entertaining YouTube sense. Yeah, yeah. look, we use it in our yeah. practice for amputee patients. We yeah. use it, you know, it's, it's a fantastic uh, tool to use. Mm. Really, I just think I think the concept I think is it's really good for people to understand is that there's a lot of um, pattern uh, things that we've done. You know, could have been learned from as a kid. Say emotional, how we react to someone, and uh, we have to kind of learn that there's a bit of unlearning of. You know, how we react to something and to also you know spend some time to you know learn a new way of act of reacting to someone say emotionally as as an example so it's just that there's there's a process and we just got to put the time and effort into it but also the unlearning part is also a factor there too as well brett what would you like to ask i know you're dying to ask a question here well i was just wanted to ask you know, we've spoken a bit about this sort of functional neurology about this brain plasticity but i guess people are going to be sitting there listening to this thinking well if I've got a problem with that, and, and I guess it's not necessarily a problem, but perhaps an aberrant pattern or a pattern that could be improved on, how would I know? Like, what does that actually look like? And, and I know that this is probably a, a huge answer because there's probably a lot of things, but, but if someone's sitting at home thinking, well, how would I know if I have an issue here, how would they try and determine that for themselves? Well, it's, it's almost you need to probably see someone, to be frank, really, I'd say, because at the end of the day, one's in patterns of continual um, repetition that outside some changes occurring there, people would just sort of be accepting where they're at. You know, it's like guys, you know, we see patients with headaches all the time and patients say to us, well, you know, I've had my normal headache. We all know headaches aren't normal. We shouldn't be having headaches at all. And it's the same, I suppose, neurologically as well. So because of the work that we do is mainly functional, so it's not an ablative lesion. So it's not like, for instance, if a patient comes in with a stroke, they may have a stroke in an artery in in their brain, which then leads to a hemiplegia down the opposite side or a, a change movement pattern. That's obvious. That's very clear. We know that's happened. In the functional world, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of spheres of observation. So, you know, it needs practitioners or pe- people to self-assess themselves to some degree, but mainly, I suppose, someone outside looking in to assess via neurological assessments. Sometimes it can be just using reflex hammers. It can be using pinwheels to assess neurological changes, muscle strength. We can be testing balance issues. We do a lot of that in our practice. I know you do as well, Anthony. And then from there, we get this data or information to say, hey, there's some changes here functionally. Now, let's look to see how that relates to the history. And then we put the two together and then we start 
in-house management as chiropractors as well as brain-based exercises at home and then monitor that through a period of time and then provide further recommendations on reviews. What do you think, Anne? Yeah, that's it. There's, it's a continuum, really. Obviously, at one end, you've got the very obvious things, you know, as Paul mentioned, like the strokes or neurodegenerative disorders like MS and Parkinson's and so forth. And then at the other end, you've got the more subtle signs. And they might be just the person that presents with a headache, or they might be a person that presents with shoulder pain or a digestive mm. upset or whatever it be. And so we're looking at a neurological basis mm. for those sorts of things. Boys, Boys, this is um, – oh, I just heard myself um, <laughs> Fellas, I, I'm just interested because um, a lot of people go to a chiropractor just regularly um, to get their regular adjustments. Um, in fact, that's one of the best ways that chiropractic tends to work and I presume this is it's because of um, neuroplasticity, the uh, repetitive – um, stimulus to the nervous system creates change and improvement in well-being. That's, that's what I'm just presuming. Um, would, would that be correct? Yeah, look, no doubt. And, and I, think, um, uh, I think one of the things that uh, chiropractic is sort of one of those um, uh, forms of care where it's been around now for well over 100 years. And the way that chiropractors have explained in the past what they do was pretty much determined by the science of the time. So way back, you know, 130 years ago, we used to uh, think that, you know, a bone would go out of place and we were pushing it back into place to take pressure off a soft nerve. Now, we obviously have known for, you know, many decades now that that science is, is not accurate. Uh, as, this, our, as our scientific knowledge has improved, the way we apply chiropractic and, we under, and the way we understand how it works and sometimes doesn't work um, has become more sophisticated. So uh, there's no doubt that using standard chiropractic techniques you're going to help a lot of people. I think what the, uh, um, the functional neurology or the neurorehabilitation, what that does, it probably um, makes those more complex, more difficult cases a little bit easier to, uh, to understand. For example, uh, someone who has a basically robust nervous system is going to handle just about all sorts mm. of chiropractic care and do well with them. Yes. Someone who has a very fragile nervous system that's going to be the patient that's going to be more difficult to, uh, to manage and might need a, a more of a functional type approach. And, and, and I think also, guys, the fact that we, we centre on the spine is just very nice because of its you know, ge- geographical location to the central nervous system. And you know, if you look at, say, Heidi Havick's sort of research and, and her work looking at spe- especially with cervical, the neck area, and how it's closely related to inputs that are important for proprioception and balance, for our head in position in space, you know, it's no surprise that we've found chiropractically that we've provided uh, applications and treatments and management regimes that have made major changes to patients uh, because of the effect of we sometimes have direct effects on the on the peripheral nervous system that that and has an effect on the central nervous system. And once we affect the central nervous system, well, we're affecting um, the control system of the whole body. And, and I think also on your point too, Anthony, we, we used to think chiropractic was more on the outflow, wasn't it, more affecting organs historically going from the central nervous system out. But what we're knowing now a lot is the fact we're affecting the afferent input, the inputs into the nervous system by the different things that we apply that affects how the brain works. So it's, it's an amazingly exciting time for students at RMIT and the universities around Australia as chiropractic students. Um, they've got a, you know, it's, 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 it's an exciting time for chiropractic. Definitely. Definitely is. Boys, I'm going to follow on just because I've got another question, um, which is unlike me to have lots of questions, boys. Um, and I know that Brett and Lawrence would be surprised that I've got an extra question that might take a long time to ask. But oh, here we go. What, here we, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I just did that. Yeah. Get so, it. fellas, um, 
I've I've had practice members that uh, that I've sent to neurologists, and I've had practice members that I've sent to um, functional neurologists. Can you explain to people, uh, please, what's the difference? Really, the main difference, or is there any difference between a functional neurologist uh, like you boys, um, or uh, and and medical neurology? Uh, well, there's certainly, and I'm glad you've asked that question, actually, because there absolutely is a, a, a difference. A, a medical neurologist has effectively done a, an undergraduate medical degree, followed up by, um, you know, four or five years of p- full-time postgraduate uh, study. So they're experts uh, in, in uh, neurology, particularly as it would apply to um, pharmacology and surgery. So if someone has a significant neurological uh, disorder, whether it be a stroke or, or a neurodegenerative disease, they absolutely need to be under the care of a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. Um, functional neurology, we, we've sort of moved even away from using that word uh, these days more because we don't want to be confused with a medical neurologist. Um, and really, it's the, the, the sort of word today to describe what we do is more neurorehabilitation. And these uh, people who uh, do this sort of work are, um, are often chiropractors, but not just chiropractors. Sometimes they'll be medical doctors. Uh, sometimes uh, they'll be osteopaths or physiotherapists and so forth. But there's no doubt that, the, um, uh, that a lot of them are, are chiropractors. And we look, uh, I guess, more at what would be called soft neurological signs. So give you an example of this. A hard neurological sign would be if someone has had had a head injury and they're in an emergency, and I'm sure you know the listeners would have have watched any of the um, you know the the, the medical uh, programs on TV, have seen uh, seen a medical doctor flash a light into an eye and look for a pupil response. So when that light goes into the eye, we should see a pupil constrict. Now, if someone's had a serious head injury and there's a bleed on the brain, that can cause a stretch in cranial nerves. That means that when they shine the light in. The, the pupil doesn't respond. That's called a hard neurological sign, and that's definitely someone who needs to be under medical neurological care. Um, we, as uh, uh, neurorehabilitation um, uh, clinicians, will will often use that test, but we're not really all. We're interested, certainly, if there's a hard neurological sign, and if yes. you find it, that's a yes. referral, absolutely straight out. Yes. Uh, but usually, what we're looking for things is like, does the does the pupil slow in its response or is it very rapid or does it fatigue easily if you do it multiple times? So these more subtle changes are the things that we're looking for. So guys, so guys these, uh, one of the things that we talk about on the walls, guys, is obviously exercise and the importance of exercise. And, uh, you know, but the exercise has a massive benefit to the brain and the brain function. Tell us a little bit more so that people understand that it's not just about looking good like Brett, but it's actually actually has a, a brain effect to make them look like Damien. Well, well, look at yeah. There, there, there's no problems looking like Brett or Damien. Both are good Balding. looking. Balding. Yeah, just say, yeah. good, good looking Bruce. And, and, and as, as someone who has asked his uh, hairdresser to give him exactly the type of haircut that you've got, Damo, no, that's, I've gone for that look as well. It's good. <laughs> it works. It works, mate. Yeah, exactly. Um, Look, it is. It, it, um, it is absolutely critical. And one of the things that I, I and, and while we might um, suggest very specific exercises to uh, stimulate a very specific part of the nervous system, it might be a balance exercise, it might be an eye exercise, etc. You can't get away from the fact that simple movement is essential to life. And it's one of those things. I think as practitioners, we uh, perhaps. Um, try and complicate things a little bit too much sometimes and we devalue um, simple walking. Mm. It, just for a person to get out of the chair yep. regularly 
stand and so walk true. about makes a massive difference, not only to their cardiovascular profile, but to actually how their brain works. And people who are healthy, people who are, live long, healthy lives are people who move, not people who sit still. And, you know, it's interesting, Lawrence, we actually asked the same question of Professor Carrick, didn't we, Anthony? And, right. uh, we yeah. said, you know, what is the pearl? What is the... Uh, uh, and, and just for your listeners, Professor Carrick sort of uh, is in the chiropractic world has led the functional neurology uh, movement for the last four decades. And uh, we asked him about what if there was a pill that we could actually give to help the brain. And he responded by saying, saying well, if it's a pill, it would be called movement. Uh, so, you know, that for us was a really, uh, you know, it was a really salient point, a really key point that ultimately the brain is always changing. Ultimately, we are moving more toward a sedentary lifestyle that we all see with the patients and clients we see every day, which is unfortunate. Ultimately, our genome was one based on movement. We didn't sit down and have computers. We hunted and gathered for food and we kept moving. We, didn't, we were nomadic in regards to our, our, our genetic background. And so hence, you know, for the brain, it needs that activation all the time as much as possible. So... Getting someone who is, for instance, sedentary and getting them up and about and moving and walking is a very simple strategy that probably we take for granted, but we can't underestimate the value that does for uh, the well-being of the brain, you know, keeping it active, keeping it firing. And I suppose, you know, now we, you know, we often give advice for patients who, if they're watching TV, well, perhaps use a treadmill to watch your TV or, you know, get up, go for a walk, take the dog for a walk, get moving because it does fire the nervous system and anything that activates the nervous system in a, in a positive neuroplastic way is really good for its well-being. So you mentioned walking there. What are some other movements that you'd love to recommend? I mean, obviously, you're always recommending all the time you know, movements that are very specific for people in terms of helping them undo their particular neurological issues. But as far as just general movement, you know, what, are, what are some of your favorite exercises to give to people to get them going? So uh, for me, certainly... Uh, Exercises that challenge balance. Um, I, just recently, there was a report where I was asked to give comment on a report about trampolines and, and what, as a chiropractor, I thought of them. And of course, I, I expected or that maybe they thought I would be uh, against trampolines because of their potential injury. Um, and I guess some, that those types of activity we do recommend with caution. You know, uh, people, you know, accidents do and can happen. Just, mm-hmm. just, trample, just Google trampoline accidents and you'll see some, you know, pretty horrible things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but assuming that the equipment is good, assuming that um, there's no more than one person on the trampoline at a time and assuming that people aren't trying to do crazy tricks without proper guidance and training, those types of balance activities are fantastic for the brain. They're great for, for uh, neuromotor control. They're great for learning. They're great for weight control. So anything that sort of puts people in an environment where their balance is challenged, but challenged to a point where they can cope with it. So, for example, if someone comes in and they can't even stand on one leg, then probably trampolining is not going to be good for them. It might be just getting them to the point where they can stand on one leg with a fingertip touching the wall. So whatever exercise you prescribe, it needs to be something that they can master. If it's too, if it's, if it's too difficult, it's a task that's, uh, that they're not going to be able to properly compete, uh, complete, rather, uh, then you have to bring it back a little bit. But balance exercises, certainly, I'm definitely mm, big on yeah, those definitely ones. regards. And look, I suppose overall, Brett, you know, it's, it's, 
trying to give a sweep of an overall program for our patients because, you know, doing light weights and building muscle strength is really important for well-being as well. It simulates neuromuscular spindles and we know there's a high rich supply of muscle spindles, which is a lot of why how chiropractic works we're finding nowadays when we're making adjustments to the spine, we're affecting the neuromuscular spindle, the the little receptor in the muscle that sends information up to the brain, we're activating and firing that. So, Again, using programs that are fairly diverse from balance to mobility to, to also some isometric type strengthening type work is a really neat overall program that is going to you know, fire up that central nervous system, um, modulate pathways or help pathways that are, you know, develop and grow and you know, really help in the optimal well-being of, of the patient's uh, nervous system. Guys, it's uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. I mean, such a wealth of information. And uh, guys, like I said, listeners right now, you should go check out thewellnesscouch.com and uh, go check out our you know, our new podcast called Back Chat. It's been fantastic. I mean, you get to dive deep into these these two brains and uh, they get to interview a whole bunch of smart people too as well and uh, really apply it into your life. Guys, make sure you go to facebook.com slash thewellnesscouch or thewellnessguys. Like us there and make sure you comment below this particular episode. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and other strangers you think need a wellness update and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and while you're there, leave us a five-star rating and leave a comment there. Guys, Paul, Anthony, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts on this. Hey, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. We loved it. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. All right, guys. Until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.